You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Before we get to today's edition of the Five Reasons Podcast with Stan Van Gundy, I want to tell you about one of our great sponsors here at Five Reasons, and that is Doral Toyota, where you can find all your favorite Toyota models, whether you're looking for a new, used, or certified pre-owned vehicle. Doral Toyota is located at 9775 Northwest 12th Street, just a few blocks from International and Dolphin Malls. Experience the Doral difference, which means four years complimentary maintenance and roadside assistance on all new vehicles. In-house financing is available for any credit-related issues mentioned Five reasons when you call 305-680-1129 or come in to the dealership and you work with a dedicated manager not a salesman unlike other dealers Dura toyota prides itself on an honest and transparent buying process that's Dura toyota DuraToyota.com, or stop in at 9775 northwest 12th street Dura toyota and now let's get to stan van gundy Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Now that you've found us, make sure that you hit the follow or subscribe button on your favorite podcast provider, whether it's on Apple, iTunes is preferred there, or on Android. You can find us on Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, a whole bunch of other places. Also, subscribe to the 12 other podcasts in our network. Yes, we now have 13. We'll be at 15 by the end of the month, those include three yards per carry. They had the Tannehill news before anybody else uh, locally or nationally. Also, Miami Heat beat swings and misses on the Marlins and Goldie on ice on the Panthers, as well as several others. Now, we're trying to get you ready for NBA season. We've got a big NBA preview coming out with six different writers, including Jackie McMullen, that'll be out later this week. But today, and I'm going to call this an honor. I know he's not going to like us saying that, but... We're honored to have Stan Van Gundy on our podcast today, uh, calling in from Orlando. You know him as the former Heat coach, obviously also from his stints with Orlando and Detroit. And now he is an ESPN analyst, so he's just like all the rest of us, um, (laughs) pundit giving opinions uh, from a desk. So uh, it's taken a while, Stan, but you've come down to our level. And, uh, and we're going to try to get some of those opinions out of you today. So, Stan, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, glad to be here. All right. So let's start here. Uh, the news of the day, and this could happen at any moment um, or it could never happen at all. We don't know, um, is Jimmy Butler. And I, what I wanted to talk to you about related to this is, is that you're familiar with a lot of the parties in, that have been involved in this. And you're also familiar with how negotiations work or should work. And I'm just curious from your perspective, as someone who worked in the Heat organization, who knows that they don't like things to get out the way that they've gotten out here over the past three weeks, that they hate this. Uh, and then 
Additionally, I know you have a relationship with Tom and, and are familiar with, with some things that have gone on there. And, and you've also played both roles, like, you know, Tom Thibodeau plays uh, in Minnesota. What is your perspective on how this has played out over the past 25 days? Well, actually, I'm with you on uh, the fact I'm surprised that as much got out about those negotiations as have gotten out because those are two of the uh, quietest organizations in the NBA as far as stuff like that. I mean, nothing gets out of Minnesota. Um, we have dealt with them on things before. It's very rare that um, things get out there. They don't put anything out, and it's the same with the Heat. So it is a little surprising um, that that's all gotten out, but I think a lot of times it's the agents and um, people involved uh, get win something and put it out there, and a lot of times it's just rumor stuff. So, um, But it's been an interesting situation because Tom Thibodeau values Jimmy Butler so much, made the big trade for him last year, and Jimmy made such a – such a big impact it seemed like Jimmy and Tom were, were sort of on the same page and and um, joined at the hip if you will and then Jimmy sort of surprises us all with wanting to get out and then I think what happened Ethan is this right the owner made it clear that he wanted a trade done quickly I think that made teams you know, try to take advantage of the situation, which they should do, um, and maybe not offer what what Tom and Scott Layden thought were were fair deals. And so, Tom has turned them down. And I think the stance Tom has taken is is basically, you know, we're going to go forward with Jimmy Butler until we have a deal that we think is better for our organization, which is exactly what he should do. In the meantime, it's frustrated some other teams because. I think everybody thought this deal was going to happen quickly, and it's clearly not going to happen quickly. So you mentioned the mixed messages there. I'm curious about that dynamic because I feel like one of the main reasons why someone would want to do both president and coaching is because you get to sort of act independently. You don't have to worry about other constituencies. You have to worry about what the front office is thinking versus what you're thinking as a coach and vice versa. And I imagine that's probably the appeal of wanting to, you know, to, to have that kind of title and have that position. But if you're Tom Thibodeau and you're being influenced by your owner, your, owing, your owner is kind of going over the top of you. It, it kind of it, it ruins your leverage and I think it ruins your negotiating position from his vantage point. How frustrated would he be that his owner is sending a different message than him? Well, I think he'd be very frustrated. But look, I mean, the thing you have to keep in mind, I don't care who you are in this league, um, even to a guy with like Greg Popovich. And I'm sure Pop would agree. It's the owner's team. Yeah. I mean, it's not like the owner is overstepping his bounds. It's his team. And so we all have bosses uh, or all of us in these jobs have bosses. And even if you're in Pat Riley's role or Tom Thibodeau's role or Pop's role, your owner's still the boss. And I think Tom is trying to hold his ground there. It's frustrating to him because he doesn't want to be in a situation where he feels forced to make a trade and lacks leverage. He's frustrated by that, I'm sure. Um, you know, and he's trying to hold the ground, which he should do. But at the same time, if it gets to a point where Glenn Taylor says, no, whatever the best deal is you have on the table, get it done now, Tom's not going to have a choice in that. That's frustrating, but that's just part of the business. So let's move to the coaching end of this, because that was the other part of your role, and it's the other a part of Tom's role. So now he has a player that has stated publicly that he doesn't want to be there. 
And there seems to be, at least from reports and other things that I've heard, you know, friction between him, you know, and other prominent teammates there. So how did now, if, if he's going to stay, if he's going to stay past the start of the season, if they're just going to keep looking for a trade and hoping Jimmy plays well until that happens, how do you as a coach manage the situation between him and, I mean, let's be honest, there are two other prominent players who are getting paid a lot of money on that team who both got extended. So how do you deal with that as a coach? Well, look, first of all, I, I think, and the players know this too, um, this situation's being treated like, you know, wow, this is so abnormal. There's tension between the better players on a team. That's only happening in 29 other cities at the same time. So, <laughs> I mean, it, there is always tension. Listen, you're talking, you're talking guys that are great players in this league, competitive people who have egos. And if they didn't, they couldn't be successful in this league. There's always going to be tension and issues between players on a team and coaches are always dealing with those situations. So let's understand that first of all, and you're going to deal with it probably the way you deal with it in any other job. You try to uh, be as honest as you can in talking about the, uh, in talking about the issues. And then at the end of the day, you have to go out, even if there's tension between Jimmy Butler and his teammates, everybody's got to go out and do their job. It behooves all of them to play well, and to win games, and you've got to do your job in regard to that. So this isn't as abnormal a situation as a lot of people have tried to paint it. Uh, it, This is pretty normal NBA basketball. It's just the trade demand of a a prominent player with the timing. If this was around the trade deadline, I don't think anybody would think it was at all crazy. But right before the start of the season, um, it has people thinking that this is really a different situation. You mentioned that there are you know public negotiations happening or you know it, it, public tensions that are happening sometimes. But I guess the difference would be is how much that this is in the media and how every day this is the you know topic of conversation amongst people who cover the NBA and there's this sort of voracious need for information about it. I, I would probably from from your career probably compare it to the Dwight Howard situation when that was playing out. Is it any different as opposed to normal tension? when star players are struggling to get along in the normal dynamics of NBA basketball by virtue of it being in the media so much? Well, it doesn't help, that's for sure. But you just have to spend a lot of time talking it through, and you're not going to totally resolve it. I I thought the most honest part of uh, Jimmy Butler's interview with Rachel Nichols is when he said he didn't think it was solvable. It, It may not be, and that doesn't mean that that team can't play well. You don't have to solve the situation. You will understand communicate enough hopefully to understand the other person's point of view and then all of us especially as coaches or veteran players like Jimmy Butler understand at some point whether it's solved or not you got to go out and do your job and play the and play the game well I mean we went through it with the Dwight situation now we didn't go through it for long because he got hurt uh two games later and ended up having back surgery so we didn't endure it very long but we went out and won the next two games and um, you know, Dwight was not happy, but he played very well because that's what he did. He was a very good player. Um, and it'll be the same with Jimmy Butler and it'll get normalized more and more with every day as they go forward. And then if a deal comes along, I, you know, they'll certainly entertain. My guess would be, 
you know, that they'll entertain deals as they come, but they're only going to make a good one unless their owner intervenes. Stan, how do you, uh, we're talking about the current media age and, you know, stuff getting out and now it's Twitter and it's constant. And I, you know, I know this stuff drives Pat insane. I, I know it drives people in the heat organization insane, but how do you control it? Because I mean, you're dealing with, with agents who are getting their spin out to certain reporters that they deal with and, Everything looks coordinated. If you've kind of in the business, you know, but the fans don't necessarily know. Like, what do you do? Like, you're running an organization. You're running the Detroit Pistons. You know, you've got a bunch of reporters. You've always been open with the media. So you've got a bunch of reporters that you deal with every day, but they're also calling agents. The players are complaining on the side. I mean, do you talk to players and tell them not to air stuff publicly? Can you even do that? Does it help? It might help a little, but probably not. You, you can't these are adults. I mean, they're grown men and they can talk to whoever they want to talk to. Um, their agents can talk to whoever they want to talk to people with the other teams in the league can talk to whoever they want to talk to. So things are going to get out. We've, we've been able to, we were able to do some deals where nothing got out, nothing got out, but it's rare. Um, I, my position was I didn't talk about hypothetical things with, with the media. And with our players, I was clear and honest up front that, look, you're going to hear a lot of things in the media. Some of them may be true. Some of them may not be true. I'm not going to tell anybody in here that we're not going to trade you because you all know that wouldn't be honest anyway, that we're looking to improve the team any way we can. There's talks that go on every day. There's no way we can comment on any of them. If you have a specific question, Come to me and talk to me and and we'll deal with it. And that was my way. I mean, I just think not I didn't get into it with the media on those situations. Um, and I was with, as honest with our players as, as you could possibly be. You made a couple of big deals in Detroit. So uh, could you take us through a little bit sort of how that process works? Because I, one of them, uh, the Blake deal, I think, took a lot of people by surprise. So. If you start with that one, like how does how does a deal like that come together where all of a sudden, you know, you're, you guys were not really mentioned. It wasn't that one really wasn't out there in the media, at least not in a national basis. And then it happens. So how does a deal like that come about? Well, yeah, that one never got out, which was amazing, actually, um, because the agent even knew a little bit about what was going on. So we actually ran into an agent who didn't want to get it out there. Neither team got it out, but that was really um, the two general managers. So Jeff Bauer on our end and working with the front office um, with the Clippers, um, just talking about, you know, hey, would started, you know, just talking about rosters in general, um, then figured out that Jeff figured out that Blake Griffin might be in play. And then it got into more specific things. Um, our owner got involved in terms of, I mean, you're going to make a deal of that magnitude. You're not going to do it without your owner knowing, knowing about it. And then we just spent time, uh, a lot of time on the phone, myself, Jeff Bauer, Pat Garrity, our assistant GM, um, and Tom Gore's our owner talking about what you would and wouldn't give up and the implications of that salary implications going forward, um, you know, what we thought would mean to our team both for the end of last year and going forward and until you've got everybody on the same uh, on the same page. And then uh, the Clippers were doing the same thing. You know, they would say, well, that sounds good. And then they would go back to, to Doc Rivers and to Steve Ballmer. And, you know, eventually we all got on the same page and made a deal. And I think to the credit of everyone, 
were able to keep it quiet and not be a distraction to the teams while all that was going on because it was probably going back and forth for at least a couple of weeks. How do you how do you sort of uh, I guess everyone has to go about their business, right? But when for example, you're coaching Tobias Harris on a day-to-day basis knowing that there are negotiations going on where he might be going to the Clippers, is that you talk about transparency and and that sort of thing? Is that something you bring up with him or are you just coaching him as if he's not going to be traded and then one day you bring him into your office and say, "Hey, you're going to Los Angeles." Yeah, that that's exactly what happened. You you can't really bring it up with them. I mean, because you have no idea if it's going to happen. I mean, look, most of the talks you have in trade, the vast, vast majority will never end up being done. And so if you were going to bring that up to guys all the time, uh, you would have no idea. And, and we see it all the time. Deals will get pretty far along and you think you've got one done and somebody backs out at the last minute. So no, I, I never expect, I never expect, any deal to actually get done. I mean, I don't have that expectation. And so I just continued to go along and coach guys as if we were going to have him uh, for the rest of the year. Um, That is the toughest part to me of being in both jobs uh, is when you're coaching, you, you, even though you will be involved in the discussions, it's not your decision and you can be, you know, a hundred percent bought into your guys and coaching them. And when you have both jobs, then that's a little bit tougher. That was a, that was not a comfortable time, especially the last week of, of those negotiations. But, um, but I was still able to do the job, but it, but it was not an easy time. I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about uh, sort of getting back to the idea of Jimmy Butler, not specifically, but more generally. When a player demands a trade or when you know that they're on the market, you, you mentioned kind of the, the, the way in which you're talking to a team about a roster, but when Jimmy Butler announces that he's available, right, that, that, that he's available to be traded for, even disregarding you know, that he has a list of places that he wants to go, is there just like a feeding frenzy to Tom Thibodeau's phone of the 29 other GMs saying, hey, I'll offer you this? Like, what, what, is, what was your reaction over the course of your time in Detroit when players became publicly available? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, we would pursue anybody that where we heard rumors even like that and just see what's going on. No question about it. I would guess that Minnesota heard from certainly the majority of the league, if not nearly everyone. Um, because you want to see what's going on. Some people will be more interested than others, but everybody's going to check and see what it would take to get a player of, of Jimmy Butler's caliber. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And so you're going to deal with a volume of calls and try to pare it down to the ones that you think are best. Um, you know, and then see if you want to go ahead with any of those deals. So, you know, Jimmy Butler doesn't have the choice. I mean, sometimes it was presented of, you know, Jimmy's decided he's not going to be in Minnesota anymore. Well, he can't decide that. At the end of the year, he can, but not now. And he may have a list of teams that he prefers to go to, but as an organization, you don't care about that. I mean, you care about getting the, if you're going to trade him, getting the best deal for your team. You don't owe him to get him somewhere he would like to go. He can take care of that in free agency, your, your only concern is what's best for our organization. And for now, they've obviously decided that what's best is to hang on to Jimmy Butler and, and play, that that's a better option for them than anything else 
they have on the table right now. I want to pivot with you here real quick to the Heat, Stan, because I know how familiar you are with Spo and kind of as a coach, you've addressed some of this, but just specific to them. So he's going through this entire offseason and trying to plan on playing a certain style with the roster that he has, all while trying to get on the same page as Hassan Whiteside, all while trying to potentially work Deion Waiters back into the mix, while bringing Dwayne Wade back, bringing Wayne Ellington back, and trying to get off to a good start this season. And now we've had, again, very uncharacteristic stuff for the Heat, where there's a trade rumor out there for the last three weeks that the Heat have actually taken the uncharacteristic step of actually acknowledging publicly, which is something that they don't do. But Pat's statement about not cursing out Tom basically acknowledged that there have been conversations, which, is, again, is not a public stance that they typically take. So if you're in Spoh's position right now, just again, go about your business, try to put together the best possible, you know, rotations that you can. And, and do you need to say something in his case, maybe to a Josh Richardson or some of these other players that, that have been talked about? That all depends on the individual player and Spo and Pat will know Josh Richardson or Bam Adebayo or whoever else might, whoever else's name might float, whether they need to be spoken to and what needs to be said to them. But as far as, coaching I mean you go out and coach the team you have as well as you can every day you're not worried about what might be coming down if a deal's made then you've got to make adjustments certainly Jimmy Butler is a different type of player um, than some of the other guys Miami has then you'd have to adjust a little bit but right now Spo it's just you're moving ahead with the team you have and coaching that team um, to the best of your ability um I'm sure they got Spoh's input on Jimmy Butler, on guys Miami should or should not include. Um, but it's not his decision at the end of the day, which I'm sure he enjoys, and he's just going out and coaching the team. So you get Blake Griffin, that you mentioned at the end of last season. So now, again, back to your coaching hat. And you had to then try to make a playoff push with a, a new player who was going to be sort of the fulcrum of your organization going forward. So after that trade is made, how many hours are you devoting to this is how this should look on the court now? These are the pieces I need to fit with him. How difficult was that for you as a coach? Because I'm just thinking to what we're talking about. If Jimmy's traded here in four days, you know, Spoh's got to make a pretty quick transition. I know it's happened in the Heat organization before. Zoe was traded here, right? I guess, right as the season started. You know, Obviously, Tim Hardaway was. Uh, Mash was so I mean this kind of stuff has happened before so for you with Blake what was that like well some situations are easier than others so we had made trade deadline deals two other years in Detroit we made a trade deadline deal for Reggie Jackson very easy adjustment Um, we really didn't do anything differently we had relied on our pick and rolls with our point guards to begin with we simply plugged him in and went forward and you're teaching him your system and everything else same thing with Tobias Harris didn't really need to make any adjustments just needed to teach him two positions and what we were doing in our system but Blake Griffin was a was a huge shift for us a far different player than Tobias Harris Uh, we had been running our offense a lot through Andre Drummond um, at the high post and at the elbow using his ball handling and passing skills Um, Now, as good as Andre was there, we wanted to play through Blake more. So we had big adjustments uh, to make on the fly. We knew that going in. It was a deal made and from ownership on down with the understanding that, you know, we would hope for the best. 
Uh, we weren't playing very well at the time, so we didn't have a lot to lose. We would hope for the best, but that this was really a deal made then for this coming year, 1819, and the following year um, when we had a chance to put things together um, and get better. So some trades are, are more complicated to adjust to than others. Obviously, at the beginning of the season, it's it's easier because you have more time to adjust. Jimmy Butler, to me, would be a little bit of an adjustment for the Heat because, you know, they really play with, with pace and ball movement, and, and Jimmy is more of an isolation, one-on-one guy um, to be at his best. Um, he's a mediocre three-point shooter, um, so he has to play a little bit differently. Um, so I'm sure there would be some subtle adjustments Eric would have to make um, if Jimmy Butler were to go there. Um, but again, if it were early in the year, it's a lot easier than if you're late in the year. I wanted to ask you about Eric because uh, during uh, in uh, about 18 months ago, you said there's not a better coach in our league than Eric. Uh, what what when you go against him is the reason that makes you think that, and 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 why why do you think so highly of him? Well, he doesn't really have any weaknesses. I mean, he's great with preparation and game plans and all of that. I, I think what has really um, what has really set Eric apart in my mind. Um, his greatest strength is his ability to utilize first find the strengths of the players he has and put them in roles and in situations that utilize their strengths. And I, I think we, we clearly saw it when he was able to bring three stars together and put Dwayne and Chris Bosch in, in different roles than they've been in before to fit with LeBron. But I think even more so, um, with this incarnation of the Heat, I, I mean, we've—they've had so many guys play at levels that people just didn't foresee. So he took a journeyman in in James Johnson, and all of a sudden he puts the ball in his hands and has him like a point forward playing the three, four, and the five, and puts him in situations where he's very difficult to guard and plays extremely well. He does similar with with Dion Waiters that before his injury, he was their go-to guy late in games. This was a guy that everybody else had, had thought was a little bit erratic and inefficient. And Eric made him a primary scorer, which no one had ever used him as before. And, and all of a sudden, you know, he has a great, a great role with that team. Uh, Josh Richardson has had tremendous growth. Um, and they've put him in situations where he can handle the ball some, where he guards different positions. I just think Eric finds guys' strengths uh, maybe better than anybody in the league uh, and, and get, puts them in roles where they have a chance to be more successful probably than people thought they could be. So one of the issues that they do have, though, is kind of figuring out, you know, where to go forward with Hassan Whiteside. And and you were coaching, you know, one of the, the true bigs in the league and Drummond, obviously you've coached Dwight. Uh, so you have a familiarity with that position and the way that it's evolved. In your view, is there a place for the traditional big in the modern NBA? Well, there certainly is. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, but the tough part is, and, and you saw them go through it in Miami and Dwight's gone through it it's everywhere, is those guys having to adjust to new roles. So, you know, these guys want more of a role offensively than most coaches are willing to give them. Almost nobody plays through the post anymore. 
as we know. And, and so these guys become straight pick and roll guys, and they don't get a chance to show their skills in the low post or to be even primary scorers anymore. And if you're a great player and, and take pride in what you're doing and work on your game, you know, quite honestly, you want to be more than that. You know, you want to be more than just a pick and roll guy, a defender and a rebounder. I mean, you want to show what you think to be an entire set of skills. The problem has been because of that now and because of the way the game is being played and evolved, what you see is a lot of these guys who've decided, whoa, I've got to become a three-point shooter. And they're all going out and doing things, or a lot of them are, things that, yeah, they can maybe throw up some shots from three but aren't real efficient. Now, some other guys like Al For- uh, Horford made the, made the step, uh, you know, effectively. But I, I think the sinners themselves being able to find a role that they can not only help a team but be happy with is the challenge. I just I see a lot of unhappy centers in the NBA right now. And so I, I guess my follow-up to that would be, like, for example, I think a, a player who everyone sort of holds up as the perfect example of what a big could be is Clint Capella with Houston. Defensively gets a job done, it does not necessarily demand the ball, rolls on pick and rolls, and I think sort of executes that role very well, and Houston has rewarded him very well with a very big contract. But I guess, you know, for Hassan Whiteside making close to $26 million, if you're just asking him to do a role, is that the best use of money? Well, you know, there, there are a lot of people I think have legitimately questioned, uh, quite honestly, whether it's a good use of money to spend money on centers in today's game. That, you know, let's just go with low cost options there, spend our money on the perimeter players that are much more determinant of winning and losing um, at this time. And I think it's a legitimate point. I still think there are big guys who make huge impacts, particularly at the defensive end. And uh, and on the boards, I mean, it's still a great advantage to have a guy like DeAndre Jordan who will protect the rim or a guy like Andre Drummond, who is a historically great rebounder. Um, But they have to be able to defend in different situations. Um, Offensively, as a coach, anyway, it's not hard to fit um, guys because you can play any way you want on offense, but you don't have control of how your opponent's going to play. And those guys are going to have to be able to defend a lot of different situations if they want to stay on the floor. That to me is the, uh, is the challenge, but I, I still think the Hassan Whiteside, Andre Drummond, uh, Dwight Howard, um, you know, certainly like you said, Clint Capella, those guys have a big role. Clint Capella is still young. It's going to be interesting in two or three years. If, Clint Capella is still in love with his role the way he is now. If he is, he's going to be a great player. But, you know, a lot of these guys get itchy and want a bigger piece of the pie as they as they go along. And I think the center position right now is evolving in a way that doesn't make a lot of those guys real happy. Mark your calendars. On Wednesday, October 17th, Miami Heat Beat is hosting a party that you won't want to miss. Come out and watch the Miami Heat take on the Orlando Magic in their regular season opener, poolside at Duffy's in North Miami. There will be prizes, drink specials, and more. At halftime, you might get the chance to compete in the first ever Spelling G. Go head-to-head in a spelling contest with Heat Beat host Gianni for your chance to win a free t-shirt. I'd say your chances are pretty good on this one. I'm not so sure he can even spell t-shirt. 
So come out and meet some of your favorite Heat Beat personalities, as well as other members of Five Reason Sports. That's Wednesday, October 17th, poolside at Duffy's, 3969 Northeast 163rd Street, North Miami Beach. Tip-off is at 7 p.m. You can't beat your chance to meet Heat Beat. Stan, obviously, uh, the last four years have pretty much been dominated by one team. So you're an executive in Detroit, and you're trying to chase that team out in Golden State. And now that team adds DeMarcus Cousins on $5 million this year, where they can basically just stash him for the next few months and decide how they want to use him when they get close to the playoffs. As an executive in this day and age, how do you approach that? Is this just we wait it out, you know, until this warrior run ends and maybe Durant leaves or maybe Clay leaves or maybe they start to get tired of each other, which doesn't seem like it's happened with some of the other teams, like even that Heat team I covered from 2010 to 2014. They just kind of ran out of gas that last year. I know that's happened to others. It doesn't seem to be happening to the Warriors. So as an executive, what do you do? Just the best for your fans? Or are you actually trying to chase the Warriors at this stage? Uh, again, I think everybody's philosophy is a little bit different. Our philosophy, uh, you know, emanated from our owner. Um, he thought we were at a position where we needed to go out and compete the best that we could um, every single night. There are other teams who, you know, will hoard cap space and and uh, draft picks and things like that and, and wait to make their move when they think that there's a, uh, when there's a better chance to win. Um, you know, Miami, I think, has, has pretty much always taken – they've had some down years, but they've been brief. So, you know, they had the one year where, what, Pat won 15 or 17 games or something. Um, they ended up drafting Beasley and the whole thing. But, but they, they would never undertake in Miami – uh, process like Philadelphia undertook. For the most part, Miami's going to try to put the most competitive team on the floor as they can every year. Um, and, and that's the same thing that our owner wanted to do uh, in Detroit. Um, but at the same time, trying to preserve, you know, some future and develop some young guys and everything else. It's not an easy line to walk. Um, and that's why I think a lot of teams do what Philly has done and everything else. They just opt to, to go bad for a certain period of time and then try to be better. I mean, I, you can go through 30 teams in the league and, and find really 30 different philosophies and everybody's in a different situation business-wise. The need to sell tickets, um, TV rights, people are building a new arena. So many things factor into what your organizational philosophy is going to be and everybody in our league's in a different spot did you have a problem with how philly handled it well i no, i didn't have a problem with how philly handled it i don't think it is good for our league or for any league um when people are trying to lose games or even if you want to make it sound better aren't trying to win games. I don't think that that is good. I, I think the, the basic assumption when you watch a sporting event is you're watching two teams play who are trying the best they can to win the game. That's where the, where the drama comes from. That's where the stories come from. And I think when that's violated. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. 
Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I don't think it's fair to, to fans. I think, however, the organizations have every right to do whatever they think is best for for their team. I, I would prefer a league where we did not in any way incentivize uh, losing. Um, I would prefer a league for that matter that, um, you know, sort of was set up for more parity and things more like the NFL is, but I don't think any of those things are going to happen, at least in the near future in the NBA. So this is the system we have and every team's got to navigate it the best that they think they can, you know, um, Philly now seems very happy with, you know, with where they are in the process, as they call it. They went through, though, I know, a lot of really bad years, historically bad years, um, to get to a point where they've now won one playoff series. And we'll have to see how far it goes. There's just so many things that can go wrong. We'll see if the investment uh, pays off or not. What would be the two things that Stan Van Gundy would change about the league and its incentives so that that wouldn't happen? Well, the first thing, and again, I don't think – so I'm coming at it from a standpoint – of you know somebody who's been in worked in the league and wants to see more parity. I don't think that Adam Silver thinks there's any problem with the Warriors being as dominant as they have been, adding DeMarcus Cousins or anything. I, I think the business of the league is good, and he would argue that there's no problem at all. If you wanted though to give 30 teams a better chance to to win a championship, to be able to contend. I think the first thing that I would do is remove the individual maximum on players' salaries. I also think this has the added advantage of actually being fair, that the people that fans pay to see, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, whoever it may be, can get paid as much as you want to pay them. Where the parity part of that comes in um, without changing the system is we've seen Kevin Durant um, take a pay cut uh, to keep the Warriors together. We saw it a little bit with the Heat. Those guys are taking fairly minor, well, fairly minor pay cuts by percentage anyway of to stay with teams. So they might take a couple of million dollars off of their salary. Now, if all of a sudden I can offer Kevin Durant $55 million a year to play for my team, guess what? He's not going to take a $40 million pay cut to stay with the Warriors. I'd be willing to guarantee that. And I think everybody else would agree with me on that. Now, I think in that situation, we spread the stars out around the league. I think it's very hard to put together a team like Miami put together or the Warriors have put together because there's just too much money those guys would have to give up. So that would be the number one thing. And then the number two thing is you've got to do something uh, with the draft to me to disincentivize losing. I actually like the idea of, of simply getting rid of the draft. Um, and then you you go out and treat, treat those guys coming out of college as, as free agents. And, you know, you've got your salary cap to contend with. And if, if somebody wants to go out again and, and offer, um, you know, Deandre Ayton coming right out of college, if somebody wants to go out and offer him, $35 million a year. So be it. Go ahead. Do what you think's best for your franchise. That, that would be my um, solution. Um, the Boston Celtics have put together a, uh, you know, a proposal for what they call the wheel, which is basically that your draft position is, 
is determined ahead of time, um, and it's in a 30-year cycle. So you'll have each spot in the draft every 30 years. You'll know about it ahead of time. So if you want to trade a pick, you'll say, look, we're the number three pick in 2020. You can have that. But it's all known ahead of time. So there's no no incentive whatsoever to to lose games. It's not going to help you in draft positioning or anything else. Um, anything that disincentivizes uh, losing to me would be uh, would be tremendous. And if you made those two moves with no individual max in the draft, um, I think you'd get much greater parity in the league, spread the stars out, and pay the people that people are actually coming to see. Um, so I think it would have a lot of benefits. Um, the chances of either one of those uh, happening are exactly zero. <laughs> <laughs> Although I got to say this, Stan, you're speaking Chris's language. Oh, my you, God. Because your first one was basically the proposal that Chris has made here on the podcast about eliminating the draft and and having teams recruit, you know, and, and look, if you're an attractive team, then people want to go play for you. Or if you're not as an attractive team, but you have more money to spend, then people want to come play for you. And so I you, you basically just gave it. I, I don't know how we're going to do another podcast because you basically <laughs> just gave entire proposal. Well, no, and, and the and other thing is, look, the, yeah, the star players have brought this up from time to time. I mean, you know, it, it's hard to say a guy that's making the money, $20, $30 million, some of these guys are making, you know, it's hard to really make a case that they're getting screwed, but they are. And they're not getting paid what they could make on the open market. But the problem is they'll never get that changed even through the players association. It's not the owners holding them back. It doesn't really do the owners any good to have an individual maximum salary. They like it, you know, if you're in Miami or Golden State or the Lakers, desirable places to live, maybe you can put together a super team. Um, but they're going to pay the same amount of money, basically, in payroll um, regardless. But the Players Association will vote against it because there's only a handful of those guys are going to get the big salaries. And if they get those big salaries – then these mid-level salaries of $10, $12 million a year, like the salary Justice Winslow got, if all of a sudden there was somebody on that team making 45 or $50 million, those guys now are not going to make in the 10 to $13 million range or even the 8 to $10 million range. They're now going to make minimum salaries, and the stars are going to get their money. It would be fairer based on who people are paying to see in person and on TV but that one will never get through the Players Association because the vast majority of, of players would not do as well under that system. So um, it's a socialistic system. So the NBA salary cap this year is $101.8 million. If there was no individual max, how much money would LeBron James be offered? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, certainly LeBron would, would even want that limited to some degree because he's going to want want people around him so i'm gonna say conservatively 50 million um but somebody would offer him higher you know you're the sacramento kings and you've been struggling for years i mean who's why not you've got all those young guys who aren't making a lot of money why not go offer him 70 million dollars you know um it would make things very interesting very competitive and it would be very 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 hard to put three stars on a team for sure. It would even be tough two stars unless one of them's a rookie. The other thing I would do is I'd get rid of the rookie. Obviously I said that you could go mm -hmm. sign a rookie for whatever mm -hmm. I'd get rid of the rookie scale. So um, it would be hard to put those guys on the same team. I just don't think you'd ever see a, a warriors team put together. I, I don't. 
Um, I think it would be fair for everybody. All the markets would get to would get to have stars. I, I think it would be great. But the league's doing really well right now. And whether it's the Warriors now or the old Yankees in baseball, dynasties sell. And so I think Adam Silver would tell you we don't need to fix what's not broken. We'll get back to Stan Van Gundy here in a second. I want to tell you first about the BetQL app. You've got to download it for free on Google Play if you're Android or on iTunes. You can find it on the App Store also for free. The reason that you need to do this is you don't want to just gamble blind. You know, just bet on games because you feel like betting on a game. You want information. You want to know which way the line is moving, where other people are putting their money so you have an idea what direction you want to go. Yeah, that's right, Ethan. You can get college football. You can get NBA now that the season is starting up. You can get NFL and, and, and all that kind of information. And it's just exactly what you said. Line movement. They've also got their opinions on where they think lines should be and how it compares to the Vegas line. So you can figure out where your value is. You want to make smart bets. You want to make value bets. That's how you win money. Download the BetQL app today. All right, we're going to do some rapid fire here to close with you, Stan. So uh, I'm going to throw a few questions at you. First time you knew Dwayne Wade was special? Uh, very first uh, summer league that he played in. What was it about that? What did he do? Because I was there in Orlando. I remember it. I remember there was a lot of focus. Yeah, on we, we took a guy. Yeah, we knew with the roster that we had coming back that we were going to try to play him at the, uh, at the point. Um, and so we took a guy who had not played the point in college and immediately threw him into a point guard position and with his intelligence um, was able to pick up on that and still find his spots and play his game and, and dominate um, playing the hardest position um, in the league, having never played it before. I mean, it was, we just knew that mentally, I mean, we knew physically how good he was, but I think within that summer league, we knew mentally he was something special. Where does that, uh, that playoff run rank in terms of your personal you know achievements or, or what you've enjoyed in terms of coaching basketball that run against uh the, obviously the hornets the seven game series and then and then taking indiana to six well that was probably the most fun i'd had as a head coach in the league i mean that was my first year anyway but but that whole season was a it was a great deal of fun i mean we we started zero and seven and then we were five and 15 and with you know, uh, a little over a month ago, we were 25 and 36 and, and won 17 of our last 21. I mean, it was a team that even through all the adversity and all the losing um, early in the year, just had such a great bond and such a great commitment um, to work and get better. And then it all came together uh, late in the year and, and the fans responded to it and liked that team, um, you know, and then very first playoff game of Dwayne's career. He hits a game winner with less than a second to go. I mean, there were just a lot of things uh, that made that year a lot of fun. And and for pure fun, um, you know, as a head coach in, in the NBA, I never had anything that matched that. We had Brian Grant on our pod, and uh, and Brian talked a lot about that team, although he made it in mission. So I'm curious if you would, too. If that trade for Shaq doesn't happen, how far could that team have gone? I mean, I mean, the upside on that team was going to be somewhat limited. Um, you know, I, I don't think that um, it was a team that, at least by the next year, could have gotten to the to the finals. But maybe a couple of years down the road, I mean, Lamar obviously became 
a great player. Dwayne continued to improve and become a great player. Uh, you know, but Brian and Eddie Jones started to decline a little bit. So, yeah, there was a ceiling on that team. And, and I thought that, you know, Pat made a, obviously a huge move bringing Shaq in, but it was, it was great timing also. He was, you know, a lot of times you wait too long in this league. And I thought he got out ahead of it and, and capitalized on the achievements of that team that maybe raised everybody's value a little bit. The 2009 season. Um, I remember talking to LeBron about this and he, he joked because he remembered that everyone was calling Michael Petrus the, uh, the LeBron stopper. And he looked at me and he goes, what did I average of that series? 13, 38, 13 and 12, something, something ridiculous. Um, How did you guys looking back? How did you guys win that series, that Eastern conference finals against, uh, against Cleveland? Well, the number one thing is, and and this is usually the case, we had better players than they did. I mean, they had the greatest player in the world, but he didn't have a lot around him on, uh, on that team. We had a very good, very balanced team. We had more depth um, than they had. Uh, We had more options to go to. Um, We had had success against them even into the preseason. So preseason, regular season, I mean, that was a team that we had uh, great confidence against because we had played well against them all year. And, and, and I really do think if you look at the rosters, we, we just, we had the better team and it was LeBron against our team. And we sort of left it at that. I mean, LeBron played an incredible series, as he said, an incredible series. But at the same time, like we never thought of, well, I'm not going to say we never thought of, but we never double teamed him. Um, you know, we thought he was so dangerous as a passer and we just didn't think at that time that, um, that we could survive him playing well and getting everybody else involved, that we were a lot better off just leaving it all to him. Um, and so he played a great, great series, but it's really a series we should have swept. Um, the highlight that they show all the time now, of you know, LeBron hit that big three, uh, at the end of game two, we were up two to give them a win. If not, if I play that situation better as a coach and have our guy on the ball come off and double team him on the inbounds pass, we win that game, uh, which we would have been up 2-0 going back home, um, and they'd never beat us at home. Uh, we would have swept the series. We were just the better team. I wanted to ask you about Dwayne Wade's last season in the league and just the overall concept of uh, retirement tours, so to speak. And I, I, there, there are times throughout your career that you've been annoyed, uh, so to speak, with the pageantry of the league and you know these you know long intro videos and long retirement ceremonies. But the idea of a player getting to announce that it's his last year and then kind of going city to city uh, and sort of saying goodbye to each one one at a time. Uh, what do you make of it? Look, Dwayne deserves it. Uh... But at the same time, I, I thought with Kobe, the great career he had, I, I didn't like that the last year with him. I, it, it almost became like he was out making a series of personal appearances. And, and my memories of Kobe, and I think most fans are of this, uh, as it should be, of this great competitor um, who was coming into your building every night to kick your ass. And and to have him go on a tour that seemed like friendly and everybody loving each other and Kobe was friendlier than usual and the Lakers weren't competitive. And I just thought it was a bad way. I thought he deserved better. Um, I certainly don't mind 
you know, a, a video at the start of the game, something like that. I, I think that's great um, to remember a Kobe Bryant or Dwayne Wade and certainly a ceremony maybe before the last game at home for them. But, but other than that, I mean, to do 29 games of uh, or 30 for your home games of, uh, you know, uh, of like we're honoring you and that's bigger than the game, that, that's way too much. Um, you know, let, let's say goodbye and give them a little video and then let's go to battle out there and see who's got the better team. That to me is what really shows respect for guys like Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade and the players and competitors they've been in this league. Who's your dark horse this year uh, of the teams that you competed against, particularly in the Eastern Conference? Because there's a lot of talk, obviously, with LeBron gone that it's wide open now. And I know there's talk Toronto, Boston, Philly, maybe in a first tier. But is there a dark horse team in, in, in the league as a whole or the Eastern Conference that you think people are sleeping on right now? Well, right now, I would say that the dark horse in the East would be Indiana. I, I thought they were very good last year. Um, and I thought they improved themselves in the off season. Um, but I do think that, you know, the Jimmy Butler thing hanging out there could change who the dark horse is. I mean, I would look at Indiana, Washington, Milwaukee, Miami, uh, if, if those teams are healthy, um, I'd even throw in Detroit though. I always hesitate on that because I don't want to be acting, you know, it's just, it's a personal thing, but I think health with any of those teams um, could lift them into that top tier into the having a home court in the playoffs and, and then having a chance and, you know, health trades, all of those things. But if rosters stood pat right now, I would put, uh, I would put Indiana at the top of that list, even though I think some of those other teams are more talented. My Indiana's proven it and they've added to it. I, I think that they've got a chance to be a lot better than what people are saying. Nobody's really talking about them. Uh, it's been quiet. Um, I, I think the Tyreek Evans edition in particular really helps them. I personally think Kyle O'Quinn helps them. Oladipo became a star. If Miles Turner can take the step we thought he was going to take last year, if he can take that step this year, that team can compete. Dwayne Casey praised you recently for setting the foundation in Detroit. I know, like you said, I know you don't want to step out too much and, and kind of put expectations on them, but in terms of your overall work in Detroit, is there like how do you evaluate it? Like, and and how do you watch them this year? What 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 do you look for? You know, that's interesting. I really don't know um, if I'll watch them or or how I'll watch them. I mean, it, it, getting fired. You know, most people try to downplay it. I mean, it's painful. It really is. You know, I mean, you you go there with with big hopes and dreams, and you put a lot of time and effort in, and you know, your heart and soul into it and it didn't work out and uh, we didn't win enough games. And, and that's the bottom line in this sport. So I'm not making any excuses or anything else. Um, you know, I hope for the players sake and, and Dwayne's sake that they do well. I have good feelings for um, Tom Gores and his partners at, at Platinum Equity in the ownership group. So, you know, I, I'm certainly not rooting against them. I think like in most situations, you know, there's there's some people and, you know, you don't really care for there, but the majority of people you want to succeed. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know how much I'll watch them, but, but certainly it's a group that, you know, in large part, they've added a couple of pieces, but in large part, it's a group that we put together there and, and I want them to succeed. Um, because I like them and I care about them. Right, two more quick ones here. Um, you've been one of the coaches in the NBA, I think along with pop, 
and Steve Kerr that has not been afraid to express yourself politically. Uh, we don't see that happen in the NFL. Uh, it's different culture, obviously. Do you think that's hurt you in any way that you've been so open politically, or do you think that the cult, again, the culture of the NBA maybe being more progressive than the other leagues kind of shields you in some ways from, from some of that criticism. Did you deal with any of that criticism from fans when, when you spoke out politically? Oh yeah. Yeah. You get it both ways. You get some people who support you and you get a lot of people who, you know, either argue the point with you or just tell you that, you know, you shouldn't be involved in that. And um, you know, you should shut your mouth and, and coach your team and, and the whole thing. So, so you certainly deal with the uh, criticism there. I've never thought about whether it actually helped me or, or hurt me. I, I think there are times in all of our lives, I, I think it's with everybody where you feel compelled um, to speak out. I mean, it, it can be in a situation that nobody's ever going to hear about defending a certain person, but I think everybody has times where, you know what, they just decide, like, I have to stand up here. I have to stand up and be counted. And for me, um, the situation that goes on in our country or has gone on in our country over the past, I don't know, a large number of years, to me, seems to be getting worse in terms of um, race relations in particular, but, you know, human equality in general. And I think I just get to a point when those issues come up where I'm going to speak my mind and I'm not really thinking about, and I think that's probably clear to everybody that I'm not thinking about uh, whether it's, whether it's good for me or not, you know, so that doesn't really weigh into it. And it certainly doesn't weigh into it for those, for those other two guys. And, and I have tremendous, tremendous admiration for both pop and Steve, because they're in a different situation than I'm in or have been lately anyway, in that they're really at the top of the league. Pop is the preeminent coach in the league over 20 years. And Steve with the, with the dynasty team right now, the fact that those guys have been willing to speak up, I think has meant a lot because they're literally at the top of our profession and um, they certainly have nothing to gain. They've already gained everything. They have nothing to gain by doing it. It's a matter of conscience, and, and I couldn't respect either one of them uh, more than I do. I have great respect for the athletes, um, and it's mainly been in the NFL and the WNBA, um, those two leagues more than any others. I have great respect uh, for the athletes who put themselves out there and, and speak up. I, I think that anyone, and, and, and I, I do think I've been consistent in this, even if people disagree with me, I think when people have strong beliefs and feel the need to speak out and then have the courage to step out and, and talk about what they believe in. I, I, I have great respect for them doing that. Did anybody uh, in the organization ever tell you no? Did anybody with the Pistons say you need to stop this? We have a pretty, you know, we have a blue collar, uh, you know, crowd in a lot of cases. I mean, Michigan obviously is, is kind of a purple state at this point. Like uh, did anybody say, Stan, you need to stop. No, our uh, my ownership, Tom Gores, and the people who worked with him were were always uh, were always great about it. Now, I mean, they did, you know, I mean, they certainly, you know, would talk about also about you know the reaction we've gotten from our fan base and and everything else, and um, you know, so that I knew that there were business implications and everything else, but. I think they saw it quite honestly as support 
for our players and the players in the league and that these were issues of human fairness and equality and that that's something that we should stand for. So I think they were right with me uh, all the way on, on that situation. They were very supportive of it. Um, you know, I'm not going to say they were behind me cheering me on and pushing me out there, but they also weren't, uh, weren't stopping me. Um, and I, I'm appreciative that I had, um, you know, the ability to speak my mind without recrimination. We still have the ability to speak our mind. I mean, I, I thought it was great when Pop was asked whether his owner had given him permission to speak out. And he said, no, the Constitution gave me uh, the free, you know, the permission to speak out. And I thought it was exactly the right answer. So we always have the right to speak out, but your owner decides whether you have the right to speak out without recrimination. And and I certainly did. And, and I think Pop and Steve had too. And some other people may not be in the same situation. And some other people also may just not be, they may agree with you, but they just don't feel as comfortable speaking out or they don't feel as convicted to speak out. And I have no problem with that either. I don't speak out on every single issue that's out there. I mean, I think climate change is a major problem and, but I'm not, I just haven't spent any time speaking out about that. I mean, I think there's other people who can speak to that better than I can. I, I, you know, you, I think we all need to speak out when we are absolutely compelled. Like I know I need to say something here. Um, We've all got to stand up in those situations and be counted. We'll get back to Stan Van Gundy here in a second. I want to tell you about BetDSI.com. You can gamble on just about anything. Obviously, NFL weekend, another one coming up. Do you like the Dolphins against the Lions at home coming off the big Brocktober win against the Bears <laughs> or also some NBA stuff, Chris? We've been taking a look at some of this. Um, that heat number still interesting yeah no doubt it's uh, basically just around over 500 if you want to bet the uh, the Miami Heat to go over 500 it is available over at bet DSI but the other thing too Ethan is we've got games now we've got NBA games on opening night that you can wager on the opening night schedule the Sixers are away to the Boston Celtics the Celtics are favored by five and the Oklahoma City Thunder are at the Golden State Warriors the Warriors are favored by 11 and a half with Russell Westbrook potentially out of that one so opening night line futures lines all available at betdsi.com be sure to use the promo code reason 101 want to close with you stan with a couple of uh light uh, uh conversations uh, and frankly your two greatest contributions in your time in detroit to nba internet culture uh the first was uh back in the vine era where there there is a famous video of you in a last time out huddle uh, yelling at your team just form a fucking wall uh in, in on on last on last play defense can you describe that situation and I, I i would imagine that's something you've probably told your team before can you just describe what that situation was yeah it was actually a pretty simple situation um the spurs had the ball out of bounds underneath their basket with less than um with less than three tenths of a second so the only thing they can do is lob the ball up and tip it in you can't even you can't even control it at that point. And so we just didn't want anything to be able to go to the rim. So we just wanted to form a wall, um, you know, outside of the restricted area and not let the ball be, be lobbed in there. That, that was as simple as that was, um, you know, but we had some guys wandering around or, you know, not paying enough attention, let's say. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, we tried to make it, 
tried to make a point of emphasis as to what we were trying to do. And the other one was a picture uh, taken by MLive.com of you at a charity <laughs> yes. event. Uh, I, I imagine you know what I'm talking about. Uh, what was the reaction to uh, – it's like a picture of you on a bike. You're wearing a hoodie looking very intimidating. Uh, what was the reaction? And, and was, that a, was that a charity event or was it just a, a team bonding event? What was that? No, well, it was uh, – we had this event where they call it the slow roll. It's done in Detroit. And we just joined in where you ride through the streets. Um, they do it once a week all, all summer in Detroit. And then we stopped off um, and made an appearance at a boxing gym um, for underprivileged kids. So we were actually waiting for the event to start. I, I will say I can't look intimidating. That's you, not look, you look intimidating in this picture, Stan. I simply look <laughs> serious. And, and it did become such a big deal, you know, but and I never really understood why. But. But I did say the other day, you know, look, I, I've been when I was in Miami, I mean, Fat Joe had me in one of his rap songs in, in Detroit, you know, uh, Big Sean had me in his song. So I am something of a cultural phenomenon. <laughs> as, were you as a, as a lyric or as a uh, as, as like no, a part a of lyric. the video? Yeah, no, as a lyric. As oh, a lyric. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm big. I'm big. Yeah. I, I we we uh-huh. agree, Stan. The five reasons position is that we agree you are a cultural <laughs> phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and to that end, this is how big we're going to close with this. This is I was going to get Levitard stories from you, but we'll do that another time because uh, I don't want Dan's head getting any bigger than it is literally and figuratively. But um, but, but, but 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 Stan, there's one thing that happened. I, I went to an event. I'm going to actually text this to you. I went to an event because uh, Udonis and Dwayne, two of your rookies in 2003, uh, opened up a new place called 800 Degrees in Aventura. They're getting getting in the restaurant game together. And Dwayne came over to the table because he was trying to figure out, he said he talked to Udonis, that he got a text from someone and he wasn't sure who it was, but he thought it could be Stan's. He was actually cross-checking on our phones to make sure uh, that it was actually you. So I'm, I'm going to send this to you because it's, it's a pretty good moment from Dwayne. where he No, he did, it. and he finally got back to me and said, you know, sorry for uh, not getting back to you sooner. I wasn't sure it was you. Yeah. So, right. so, um, <laughs> yeah. So you, you know what? If you'd put him in Game Six at the end there, uh, again, I don't want to bring this up, but I guess <laughs> he probably would have known the number immediately. That would be my only guess. Yeah, he he would have known the number immediately. And and here's the thing, okay? So as long as we hit that on Game Six, uh-huh. I still wouldn't put him in the game. Not at that point in his career, I would now. And in Game Seven of the Eastern Conference Finals the next year, I'd still go to him for the last shot. So. Um, you know, I, I, you always get criticized and I have no problem with it. Any, I've always said as a coach, you have to realize it's only the right decision if it works. Mm -hmm. So some coaches get really upset when they get criticized afterwards, almost indignant that you should question it. I I have no problem with that. I, I can't say either one of those were the right decision because they didn't work out. I can just say I would do them both again. And I've said, um, said it on Dan's TV show again last week. I personally think Dwayne is the best end of game player. If I had to have any person in the history of the league that I've seen in the last second of a game to take the last shot, I'd go with Dwayne Wade. Now that's controversial to people, but that's the way I feel. But in Dwayne's rookie year, he just wasn't a three point shooter and we needed a three. So I wouldn't have gone with him. 
Actually, the stats back you up on that stand too, in terms of because I know people are going to say Kobe, but the, the stats back you up uh, in terms of Dwayne and Kobe and being better uh, in those situations. By the way, you made the right play call in the 2009 finals too, um, the one that Courtney Lee didn't finish. So I, I think people forget that one uh, also just because that result. Again, it's that never the right play if it doesn't go in. And, and so, but you have to accept that as coach. We, we had one in, uh, in that series too with Boston, same thing in 2009. We had decided that we weren't going to let Paul Pierce beat us at the end of the game. So if they ran pick and roll, we were going to double team him. We were going to blitz him. We did. And Glenn Davis beat us, uh, beat us with a shot. And, and we then had to, uh, you know, make a big comeback in that series to even get to Cleveland. Um, if I, and I said after the game, if I had it to do over again, I'd do the exact same thing. Um, but the people who were saying it was a wrong move, well, of course. I mean, now you have the you know you have the advantage of hindsight. But if it doesn't work, it's not the right move. I've never understood really why coaches are so indignant and get so upset about being asked those questions. I mean, that's the nature of the game. We're a results-oriented business, and um, that's what people are going to judge you on. And if you don't want that, I guess get into a different profession. This is going to lead to a whole nother conversation because I still think Jamal Mashburn made the right play in the uh, in, in in the late night. He did. He, he, he did. Thank you. He threw the ball to Clarence Weatherspoon, who was wide open, and he didn't deserve the criticism that came his way. And people trying to say he was, you know, soft and putting all that stuff on him. He made the right basketball play. Oh my God! Someone validated me after I got to tell <laughs> Sedano. Somebody validated me after all of these years. I've been arguing this. Yeah, yeah. Since, since before really... Whittingham was born, Stan. Since before Whittingham was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for some reason, you know, you always have those players who are sort of like easy whipping boys, and and Mash was was one of those in in Miami, and I I really felt bad that. Um, that he got characterized the way he did, not just criticized for making the pass, but all of a sudden it was like a character flaw. And this guy was soft and, you know, that just was a very unfair situation. The guy made the basketball play that as coaches, you spend all your time trying to get guys to make. Yeah, and, and now he owns uh, about 60 franchises, and he's doing very well, so he's actually had the last laugh. Uh, Stan, we really appreciate it. Hopefully we can do this again with you, and I am going to text you the video of, of Dwayne checking your phone number. because uh, I, I Okay, that would be great. <laughs> I think you'll get a kick out of that. All right, Stan Van Gundy, we'll talk to you soon. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.